Hi everyone, this is Graham Cowan, and welcome to the Caring CEO Podcast. We create this podcast because we believe that every leader's number one priority is to build a more caring and resilient team who enjoys growing together. It is my job to interview CEOs and other senior leaders who value building both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. I'm very keen to understand how they do this, and I'm sure there'll be lots of insights and tips for anyone who wants to build a high-performing team. It was a wonderful experience to interview Emma Hogan today. Emma is the Secretary, aka CEO of the Department of Customer Service in New South Wales. This is a very large multi-agency group, which also has SafeWork New South Wales under its banner. As a recruiter, I'm always fascinated by people and how their careers evolve. And as you'll hear, Emma worked previously with Qantas, Foxtel, in both HR and customer experience type positions. She is an ambassador for the New South Wales Mentally Healthy Workplaces Initiative and describes why she chose to do that. You can tell that both care and kindness are important to Emma because she previously wrote a book called Inspired Kindness to raise funds for charities. She discusses the best way to inspire innovation in her experience. And she's also a very big fan of Are You OK? which is obviously a cause close to my heart. She has a very interesting view about how Are You OK? should evolve. And she really sees it evolving to three questions. Question one, am I OK? Question two, are we OK? Question three, are you OK? And she explains why she thinks all those three things are important. And I might add that I very much agree with her. She has some practical tips for any manager who wants to inspire a team to have a culture of care and a culture of high performance. It was an absolute pleasure speaking with her today. Enjoy. Welcome, Emma. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. What does care in the workplace mean to you, Emma? Well, you know, we spend a huge amount of time in our workplace. Even if you work part-time, it's still a significant amount of time that you spend here. And to me, I think culture is really important. Bring able to bring your whole self to work is really important. And a culture of caring for each other and creating that diverse and inclusive culture is, is certainly what's important to me as, as a leader. Front and centre on your LinkedIn profile. And I might add that I don't think we've ever met Emma, but we have a 769 common <laughs> connections. So I think that's some sort of... Oh, they're all my closest friends. Graham, <laughs> all of my closest friends. But on their front and centre, you have that you are a mentally healthy workplaces ambassador. Why did you choose that's to do right. that? So within the Department of Customer Service sits the Better Regulation Division and within that is Safe Work. And the Safe Work team have a division within them that looks at building mentally healthy workplaces. And we've been on that journey for a couple of years. I think, in fact, since Minister Keane was in the chair. And the team came to me last year and told me they were creating this mentally healthy workplace ambassador program where they wanted prominent leaders and CEOs across multiple industries to really promote the various tools and resources available to improve people's comfort about talking about mental health in the workplace and mental wellness and really helping remove the stigma of conversation around mental health. And I noticed when they bought me that list that I wasn't on it and that, that neither was any other government leader. And as I'm quite passionate about this subject and have danced with mental health and mental wellness issues myself 
and feel like I can talk to some experiences firsthand. I asked the minister whether he would consider me being a part of that and representing government and and he agreed. And so I'm very proud to be the inaugural or part of the inaugural team, but certainly the inaugural, inaugural New South Wales Senior Public Service Representative. And for me, it's about really trying to drive a culture of that in my own area, but also trying to share those messages across government. New South Wales government is the largest employer in the Southern Hemisphere. We have 408,000 people across the whole sector. Wow. So if I can create a great culture in in my team of 10,000 and can influence other cluster leads to do the same, then hopefully we can move to a much more inclusive environment for people who have mental wellness or mental health concerns and we can make a real impact. Wonderful. I noticed that it mentioned that you had self-published a book called Inspired Kindness. What was that about? So in 2016, I finished up after nearly 10 years of working at Foxtel and I and I left very deliberately to have a six-month break. I'd been working full-time since I was 16 and I just needed a, I just wanted to kind of recalibrate where my life was at. But I also knew that I couldn't sit at home for six months and watch TV, that I needed a project. I'd been a aligned and involved in philanthropy for quite some time and I'd kind of had this vision to write a book. I had seen firsthand evidence of corporate people being able to get on the front page of magazines or in papers and and being profiled, but I wasn't seeing that in the not-for-profit sector. Mm. So I wrote a book called Inspired Kindness and it was the story of 30 ordinary Australians doing something extraordinary to change the world. It was a beautiful coffee table book and we created a thousand of them. We sold them for fifty dollars each and made fifty grand. And then we gave five ten thousand dollar grants away to the next generation of startup not for profits who were who were going to, you know, build on these types of stories. So we did some great profiles in there, lots of people you would have heard of, some people you wouldn't have heard of. In the mental health space, we did John O'Nicholas, who was the who was the CEO at Reach Out at the time. We did Jack Manning Bancroft at AIM. We did Annabelle Chauncey at School for Life. We did Sarah Robertson, who's the founder of Batir. And we did Rosie and Lucy Thomas, who, of course, run Project Rocket. So I, I really learned a lot more about mental health, particularly with our youth in that time from writing those articles. And uh, yeah, it was a great project and was very proud to deliver that $50,000 as a pay it forward to the community. What a great initiative. Were there any books or research that really shaped your interest in this that confirmed that this was really important? In terms of the Inspired Kindness book? Yeah, and your general philosophy as well. Yeah, no, not so many, not so much books I've read, but Probably my experience over time. So I emigrated to Australia from the UK in 1988. I was 15 and I had come from a very sort of low socioeconomic background and and a very, I guess, racially diverse place. And when I came here, I, I went to a small country town and probably didn't experience that as much, which I found kind of a bit confusing as a teenager. And then over the years, as I just learned more and more about diversity and various leadership roles that I'd held and became more and more passionate about it, I, I kind of realised how we've got a long way to go on diversity and inclusion and, and, and mental health indeed. But I, I do realise how lucky I am to be allowed to live here when lots of people die trying to get here every day. And so from my perspective, the, 
philanthropic side of me and the diversity and inclusion side of me is about paying back to a country that has afforded me a great lot of luck and opportunity and really trying to build upon the culture that I think Australia has always tried to be. Great. And I was a former headhunter and career coach. I worked in that space for about 15 years. And I'm always fascinated by career decisions. And, you know, I saw that you worked for 18 years, I think it was, in the private sector. And you mentioned you took a a career break, but then you joined the New South Wales Public Service. Why did you do that? So to be perfectly honest, the New South Wales Public Service or any public service had never really crossed my mind. Government, I'd been in the private sector so long, it just really hadn't occurred to me. Um, But I was very clear that I wanted a CEO role or a chief operating officer role or a chief digital or customer officer role. And I was very clear that I would only ever go back to working in the HR type space if it was something incredibly new or different. And so I'd shared this pitch of myself with various recruiters and a recruiter contacted me who I had a good relationship with and said, there's this role for the public service commissioner. It may, you might not think initially that it meets your criteria, but it does. <laughs> and I had to Google what that was. I didn't know what a commissioner was, what the, certainly what the public service commissioner was. And as I read it, I thought, oh, okay. And then I I went through the process with some trepidation. I really wasn't sure government would be for me, but the secretary for the Department of Premier and Cabinet, who was on my interview panel, really convinced me that this should be a serious consideration. And I thought, what would I do if I had no fear? And uh, which is something my husband coached me to do. And I jumped in in May 2018. And I have to say, I haven't looked back. It's been the greatest privilege of my career to serve the state of New South Wales and the state that my girls will grow up in. New South Wales government has such a rich tapestry of talent. Unbelievable. If I ever went back to the private sector, this is the first place I'd come looking for people who are capable of managing really complex issues in a in a timely fashion. I think a lot of the perception of government externally isn't real. It's, it's historic, but certainly not what I've experienced here. Yeah. And then I was the commissioner for 18 months. And then I got my colleague who was the secretary for the Department of Customer Service resigned and I got the opportunity. What were, when you think about the first month you had in the public sector, what did you notice to be different? You know what? The first thing I noticed was that I expected lots of differences, but there was far more similarities than there were differences. Definitely the big difference is really in the public accountability. So every single thing you do, you're accountable to the public. So everything you write, everything you read is, you know, publicly available or or mostly publicly available. And so the level of effort that goes into that was very different from the private sector that, you know, procurement processes, sign-offs, all of those kinds of things was a lot more ordered than what I'd experienced in in the private sector. Not to say they didn't have their processes too, just not in the same kind of way and not documented sort of within the same degree. So I found that kind of interesting, but I also feel like if you do that well, it doesn't need to slow you down. And and that's also been my experience here. And it makes you thoughtful, which Mm. I sort of hadn't hadn't considered. And as I mentioned before, my, my really 
I don't think I came in with any expectations about what people would be like or what roles people would do. I, I genuinely came in with zero expectations, but was blown away by the professionalism and the depth of talent and the complexity of the challenges that my very clever colleagues are trying to solve for the people of our state. Have you come across many others in the public sector who made the transition from private sector? Yes, yes, definitely. Not not so many at secretary level, but certainly more and more, and I believe this has sort of been over the last seven years, more and more people have come in from the private sector. As, as New South Wales in particular goes a lot more digital, we get a lot more skills and expertise externally. I think people really like what New South Wales is doing. So I've met plenty of people who transitioned in and I think now it is, you know, that's that's quite acceptable. There's not a, there's not kind of an us and them. Not that I've experienced anyway. I think the Department of Customer Service has done some amazing and innovation, innovative work. And, I, and I'm thinking primarily Thank of the you. interface that I've had at, you know, the uh, Service New South Wales, renewing licenses and that sort of thing, how that has just changed so dramatically. Mm-hmm. Was it difficult to institute such change, which involves a lot of digital change and that sort of thing? And I know some of it started before you were there, but how do you do that with a very large organisation that, you know, traditionally has been thought of as being bureaucratic? So I wasn't here when Service New South Wales was established, but the history of it is that they decided that there would be a one-stop shop for customers and we would build that over time. So it was actually started as a brand new organisation with a very clear remit by Mike Pratt, who was the Customer Service Commissioner at the time, who's now the Secretary for Treasury. He had had a strong banking and customer service background He really put the customer at the centre and they built the entire culture around service, not process. Mm -hmm. And the DNA of Service New South Wales to this day, every time I go into one of those service centres, everybody's trying to do something to help a customer that there isn't a process for, et cetera. And we get really high feedback from our customers there. And we've we've been able to sustain that. What I would say, though, is, you know, of course, I'm very proud to be the secretary and, and have service New South Wales front and centre, but we have Revenue New South Wales, we have Digital New South Wales, Cyber New South Wales, and they don't get the same spotlight shone on them from a public perspective, but they, they are developing, you know, the same ethos, the same culture. Our better regulation division thinks about the end customer all the time and how do we make it much easier for people to kind of live in society and feel safe in society and and go home at night without an injury and all of those things. So to me, the whole department has an innovative, modern focus. Yeah, fantastic. I also see that, you know, having a balance or integration between home life and work life is really important. And you're in a, you know, a very senior role, I'm sure lots of timelines, lots of challenges. How do you integrate that? It's the age-old question, isn't it? So I, when I became public service commissioner, my my stepdaughter was 10 and my daughter was 10 months old. And the commissioner role is, is very strategic. So there was a lot more opportunity to kind of manage my hours better. When I came across to be the secretary of the Department of Customer Service, it, it was actually a real reservation about whether or not I would come because I wasn't sure that I could integrate I don't call it balance because I don't really 
I, I couldn't claim to have that. But the idea of how I was going to integrate my family life and my professional life in a way that would do well in both was a concern. And then, of course, I came in and, and, and the feedback I got about that was, well, you're going to be the secretary. It's up to you to define it, if not you who, you know. So that started off really well and then we hit bushfires and then we hit COVID and it was, of course, a, an incredibly crisis year. So, and the department played a huge role in mm-hmm. COVID management last year. So what I would say is I don't think in the last 12 months on the days I've left the office feeling proud of the secretary I've been and never the same days I felt like I've been a great mum and a great wife. And then on the weekends when I feel like I've been a really good wife and mum, they're not the days that I feel like I'm necessarily a great secretary. But I think if I balance that out across the year, particularly with the context of the year we had last year with with bushfires and COVID, you know, I think we just have to be less hard on ourselves. Mm. You know, I go to bed at night sometimes if I've worked a lot of hours and I think, will I be able to explain to Ruby and Miller why I worked these kinds of hours in this kind of time. And because I'm so proud of what New South Wales Public Service has done to support our community through COVID, I really feel like that's okay. Like it's maybe not okay because I missed dinner and a bath, but in the bigger scheme of things, it's okay. When the context changes, my the time at split will also change. And I accept that. I do try very hard as a leader to encourage people to find the integration that they need we're working through right now what our what our flexibility policies will be in a post-COVID world to ensure that all the benefits we gained from people having more time at home, less commuting, et cetera, are uh, maintained. But I think to say I, I had nailed work-life balance and integration would be a lie. Um, <laughs> but it is something that I'm constantly conscious of. And if I feel the pendulum swinging too far either way, I do make a very conscious decision to bring it back to the middle. And and I'm also conscious that I'm role modelling. You know, I don't expect mm. any of my team to be in the office from, you know, seven in the morning till nine at night. So if I'm doing that, it is terrible. So we do work hard on it all the time, but sometimes the demands, you know, are beyond my control, but mostly I'm really conscious about it. Yeah, I, I also prefer the word integration to balance because balance implies that, you know, life is good, work is bad. But many, many people, yourself included, and, and also myself, you know, get a lot of fulfilment from the work we do and, and are very proud about that work. So, yeah, you know, I just really commend you for striving for that proper integration that works for both parties. And it's not going to be perfect at any one time. No, and I also think it's really important to make sure we talk about work-life integration for everyone. I'm conscious that certainly women, in, lots of women in our organisation talk to me about I work from home on Tuesdays. I'm very, I, I really try to stick to it. I'm very vocal about it. And lots of women write to me and say, you've, you've almost by doing that been given, you've given us permission to talk about our kids at work. And I, I often will do a little video with Miller sitting on my knee or to, to all of our staff because I'm, that's where I'm at that week. But I really want men to feel just as comfortable in taking the flexibility they need, whether that be for parenthood or for, for whatever it is that you that you have in mind. Just because you're not a parent doesn't mean you don't need work-life integration of some other sort. So I really want to make sure that, that we're pushing this concept of integration and flexibility for, for everyone and not just those who seem to, you know, require it more than others. We describe 
the caring CEO as someone who's really striving for both a culture of care and a culture of high performance. And I guess just like work-life integration, you know, properly integrating between care and high performance is a bit of a juggle at times. How do you go about that, that balance, that juggle? So it's an interesting question. I was just thinking about this last week when I was dealing with a particular matter in that, you know, I'm constantly talking about inclusion and diversity and and mental health. They're sort of the three. And and I I try to use the words mental wellness more because I want to talk about mental health and wellness in the same way we talk about physical health and wellness. I don't I don't want people to be left with the impression that when I'm talking about mental health, I only mean if you have a mental health diagnosis. I also mean about proactively managing the day-to-day stresses of your life so that you can remain mentally well. So even though I'm talking about it regularly and and I think as the secretary and the leader, it's important and, and that permissioning really does start with me. I also understand that that doesn't mean that that's everybody's experience in my nine and a half thousand person organization every day. And it's a journey, right? So we're just talking, even though I'm not a massive fan of that word, but it's a continuous learning arrangement. So just because we're passionate about making everybody feel included doesn't mean they do and doesn't mean we yet have it right. And one of the things that I think stops us having these conversations is we let perfection get in the way of good enough. And I think we really need to start having these conversations. And when we get it wrong, we say, you know what, we didn't do that right. And when we get it right, we celebrate it and we share why we got it right. So the next person can get it right. So it's a, it's a team effort and it happens over time and it's a learning, it's a learning situation. So sometimes if you're talking about, you know, mental wellness a lot in particular, but someone's experiencing a performance management situation, well, their experience is not that we're looking after mental health. Their experience is you're putting me under stress, right? So it is a really tricky balance about how do you support people I think if you support people day-to-day generally, it brings out the best in them and by nature leans more towards being a high-performing team. Mm. But if you are in a situation where somebody is a poor performer, once you've sought to understand their circumstances, what might be the context around why that's happening? Have we chosen the wrong person for the role? Is it, the, you know, there's a whole range of things. Then I think you still have to make those tough decisions, but the way in which you handle somebody with dignity and grace and support throughout that decision-making process is really important and something we often don't get right. Not not just here, but more generally everywhere, right? So I think that's something we've really got to explore more and we've really got to learn more about because whilst I believe the greater the culture, the greater the customer experience, the greater the engagement, the greater the performance, there is a a flip side to that where not everybody is going to make it as a great performer. Not everybody is going to want to be part of that. You know, some people have got a lot going on, which means that perhaps they're they're turning up to work not as themselves or they're frustrated. You know, this it's complex, right? Human mm. human relationships amongst teams and the bigger they get, it's complex. So my intention is always to include everybody and do the best we can to let everybody bring their whole selves to work so that they can perform at their best for the people of New South Wales. And in the instances, the very 
rare instances, the exception to the rule instances where that's not the case, then we need to flip our thinking to, okay, how can we support this person to find the right place they need to be and the right support that they need to either get them up to speed or to move them into something better suited? Or in some instances, there's no point in denying it. Some people do get moved on. It's not common, but they do. And in that instance, what are we doing to support them to transition back to a different place? What's the sort of outplacement? arrangements and really making sure we take quite specific care of the person's emotional support requirements during that time. So I think we need to grow our learnings in that space a lot more because I don't think we're I don't think we're particularly great at it anywhere in Australia. All the evidence I suggest says nobody manages lower or poorer performance well. What do you think are the key ingredients of a high performing team? I think when the team has a clear goal, well, I'll give you an example. Last year, I think everyone would say that our team was high performing. Collectively, we were high performing. And I asked one of our staff, actually, I I just said, everyone's really risen to the occasion. It's been amazing. I was doing a thank you speech at a town hall. And one of our staff said to me, that's because we've all had a common why. We are genuinely everybody understands what COVID is and everybody's in it together. Everybody wants to get this right and support the community and, and, and land in the right place. And so, you know, every academic book you read will tell you that you need a why. Simon Sinek's built a whole career on it. But actually that really came home to me last year with COVID is that everybody had a common why. So even if you didn't like working home full time, you were okay to do it because we're all aligned with the common why of we have to solve this COVID COVID challenge. So I think that's right. I think as good as flexible policies can be, I think the team sharing their their working requirements and and I think of flexibility of flexibility for the individual, flexibility for the team and then making sure the customer still gets the outcome. So I think clarity around goals, but also the facilitation for the team to do their best work in whatever that means to them. I think that's, if you've got the vision and you've got sort of probably not KPIs, but clear goals, clear tasks that need to be achieved and the impact that they're going to have. And then you allow the team to form in a way that makes them enjoy their work and and makes them feel like they're contributing. Then for me, that's the recipe for for good performance. And, And for me, I measure good performance by how happy our New South Wales citizens are. What do you do to encourage people to be comfortable sharing bad news in your team? You know, when things aren't going as expected, what are the elements that make it psychologically safe? For someone to share bad news with me? Yeah, or with your team. Hmm, it's a good question. Well, look, I would love to think that everybody feels psychologically safe to share bad news, but I'm probably not the right person to ask being the person <laughs> at the the person that leads the organization overall. It's actually a really interesting question because hierarchy, particularly in the public service, matters. It's really clear what the levels of the organization are and people talk about where they are in the organization by using numbers. So they'll say, I'm a 7 8 or I'm 11 12 or I'm a BAM 1 or I'm a. So you can sort of very quickly understand where someone sits in an organization, what their decision making kind of authority might be. So I would, I would like to think that everybody feels psychologically safe to speak up or 
you know, deliver bad news. But I think depending on the level of the organisation you are and who you're delivering that news to, I'm sure it must be quite, could be quite daunting and scary. So I I would like to think that we're okay on that. And one of the things I do is regularly say to people, I got that wrong. I, I made a mistake there. I shouldn't have done that. I should have done this. So, and in doing that, I hope to encourage people to say it's okay if you do if you do that too. But throughout the whole organisation, I couldn't be sure how people feel about that. To be to be honest, I haven't since I've been here. I don't feel like I've been surprised by some bad news that nobody told me about. So I feel like we must do that. Mm. But I couldn't tell you for sure. To be honest. Mm. How do you keep your finger on the pulse on what's happening across the organisation? You've got a large dispersed workforce across many different agencies. Do you have any secrets for keeping your finger on the pulse of the mood of the organisation? Yes. So I do a couple of things. At a broad level, we do regular pulse surveys on different topics so I can get a sense of how people how people are feeling about things. And I also do my very best to spend every second Friday in the front line. Now, that was obviously difficult last year, but I try and either be in a service centre or be on the road with an inspector or be doing a building audit or being in a fair trading call centre or, you know, something along those lines because you can really tell what's going on when you talk to the front line and you talk to the people who are talking to the customers every day. So I try to do that and I encourage my team to do that as well. As I said, more broadly, broadly we look at survey results. And then we've just started having monthly town halls, which are conversation-based between me and the team, me and the 10,000 strong team, where they can ask me any questions they want. And I actually think I can tell a lot about what's going on by the questions that are getting asked. So it might be, could be anything from pay to recruitment to performance to strategy, but if I'm getting lots of questions about the same thing, I'm like, mm, something's going on there. So they're kind of the things I use personally to think about what we're doing from a culture perspective. You have a history of innovation and inspiring innovation. I've seen you know, some of the awards that you've won at various times. And you're probably aware that you know, team psychological safety is critical to innovation, you know, the ability to try and if it doesn't work out, we learn from it and move forward. Apart from psychological safety, what else do you think inspires innovation? I think if you've seen a team do something innovative and you hear their story of what they've done, it gives you almost gives you permission to try a new idea yourself or share your own thoughts about a new idea that might fly. I think psychological safety is important, but I think also rewarding success is really good whilst being able to create an environment where people can fail and talk about failure, not in a way you necessarily celebrate failure, but where failure is not regarded as, in a project sense, is not regarded as something terrible. It's regarded as part of the pathway. I think in DCS more so than than perhaps other clusters, because of service and because we lead digital, we're we're much more used to working in agile ways and much more used to that idea of you test, you pilot, you tweak as you go, you iterate. So culturally, that kind of was already the case Mm -hmm. when I came. I wouldn't say that culture is consistent across the whole department, but it's getting there across multiple areas. But for me, it's about sharing the stories of success, particularly if the idea was an employee's idea. Mm. and not something that came from the top down, but something that came from kind of the bottom or the middle up. To me, they're they're the best stories to celebrate. Very much so. 
Do you consider yourself a introvert or extrovert on the on the scale? Which side of the scale do you think you are? I think in order to hold the role that I'm in, I think people would consider me an extrovert for sure. But if you think about the Myers-Briggs tool where it's about extroverted thinking and introverted thinking and where do you get your energy, I do have to withdraw to reboot. I do have to have time by myself. The, the thing I love about Tuesdays working from home, I make it an appointment-free day and I get my work done. I That's when I read strategy documents. It's when I have my thinking time. And I need that, otherwise I can't be extroverted the rest of the week. So whilst I think I present as an extrovert, I actually require quite a bit of introversion, both at work and at home, to have the energy to do that. So I'm probably more of a balance of both than people think. Yeah. In the last 12 months or so, do you recall a time in your personal life or your work life where you've had to ask someone, are you okay? Oh, yes. And I've had several people ask me if I'm okay as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was quite a tumultuous year. Lots of people's entire circumstances changed. So, yeah, absolutely. When did someone ask you that and what difference did it make to you that they did ask you, are you okay? Yeah, I th- I think because you're the leader, there is you know, and this is a bit of a sweeping generalisation, but there can be this expectation that that leaders are made of steel and that they need to be some kind of perfect and always coping and always on top of it. And I was quite honest last year. I was doing videos every couple of days at one stage and then every two weeks, and I would be very honest about where I was at. It's, you know, it's been a great couple of weeks or it's been a tough couple of weeks. And Sometimes if I'd said it's been a tough couple of weeks, people would say to me afterwards, are you okay? Can we do anything for you? And it just made me feel like we were all in this together. Just because I'm the leader doesn't mean I'm on my own. I have a fantastic direct reports team and we all regularly ask each other, if you're okay, do you need to take some leave? Who needs a break at the moment? Everybody's knackered. Should we be thinking about having some additional, you know, just a day's leave here and there to help you regroup or spend time with your kids or, you know, go away for that long weekend with your girlfriends. Because, you know, last year we were in crisis management, but we're going to have to maintain this level of resilience for at least another 12 months. And the second year's harder, I think, because it, it the crisis doesn't feel as, oh my God, we don't know what we're doing anymore, but it's still there. So there's this kind of steady state now. And I actually think that requires even more attention to to how we look after each other and how we ask, are you okay? So it always makes me feel cared for and it makes me feel like I'm not alone. And when I ask of it of others, sometimes I ask twice because I think when the secretary says, are you okay? People's instant response is, yes, I'm fine. Why? <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, I, I'm genuinely wanting to know. Are you okay? Is everything okay at home? I notice that you're sending me emails late at night. Is is everything okay or is that – and sometimes people say to me, oh, look, I've needed a few hours in the afternoon with my kids so it's, you know, I'm I'm because I've been homeschooling or whatever and I've logged on a little bit later. And I'm like, okay, well, that's okay as long as it's okay with you and I just want to make it clear that that's not my expectation. So it's a conversation we're regularly having. As you may know, I'm a board director of Are You Okay and been in, around it for, well, really, really since the start. and. When we first started, 
the two main reasons people didn't ask are you okay in the workplace it was that they didn't know how to identify someone who's struggling or, or start the conversation and then they were really worried that the person might say no I'm not okay and not know what to do and I think you you mentioned before about the term mental wellness versus mental health and I 100% understand how those words are important and I think the tagline for Are You Okay is brilliant, which our founder, Gavin, put together, which was a conversation could change a life. And I think everyone can relate to that. And, and I've also found in my own personal experience, like I went through a five-year episode of depression and tried everything and had a suicide attempt and all these sorts of things. And when, when I first came back, I started talking about, you know, depression and anxiety in the workplace. And there were lots of barriers that come came up at that period of time. This is going back maybe about eight years ago. And, and likewise, I also found that mental health isn't a good way because it's immediately assumed that when you say mental health, you're talking about mental illness. And so I've used words like, you know, resilience. I, I talk about, you know, personal and team resilience. And the fundamental element of that, I believe, is is having that culture of care. If people feel they're cared for, if people practice self-care, it puts them in a good place for a mood position to try new things and to move forward. And if they're comfortable trying new things, that builds resilience and growth. How can we scale care and resilience in the workplace, do you think? You know, we've talked about digital innovation and the role that can take. How can we incorporate that more in the way that we monitor what's happening in the company and can be ahead of the curve in terms of implementing changes if if there is something that isn't going well? Yeah, it's interesting. I've been thinking about this a lot lately and I, there are all sorts of terms you could use for it, but I think about the conversation is, I mean, are you okay as an organisation and a brand has been terrific, like over the time it's really taken off. But over the years, I've had a few people push back about it's not enough to ask, are you okay on one day of the year? And it's not enough to ask, are you okay if you don't know how to handle the answer of, no, I'm not okay. And so it's been wonderful to watch, are you okay, really grow with that sentiment in terms of actually, this is a broader conversation and how do we really support people? And I've been thinking, I actually think there's three parts to this. The first part is, am I okay? Mm -hmm. And how am I judging whether or not I'm okay. Mm. I read a great article last year. I'll try and find who it was by. It was just a LinkedIn personal post by a lady. I think her first name was Kate at PWC, I think. I'll see if I can find it for you. And she advises on mental wellness in the workplace. Mm. And she was saying that she really felt that she had been, as an expert in this field, that she had looked after herself during COVID and and later in the year, she couldn't work out why she was not feeling great. And she realized that the applicability of the normal things she did to look after her mental wellness, which might've been walking three times a week and it might've been having a nice bath or whatever it was that helped her feel in a really good space mentally, the context had changed and that was no longer enough. And that actually she needed to exercise more. She needed to connect and talk to her friends more because she'd realized she hadn't realized the impact of that and how much that was missing for her. So it was really that really hit home for me and and my husband actually who's been working from home since this started. And it really struck me about that initial what 
how am I checking in on whether I'm okay or am I the boiled frog and I'm just adapting to the environment but feeling worse and worse and worse but it's happening so gradually I don't actually notice. So how do we give people the tools and resources to check in on themselves? Not everybody wants to tell a work colleague about what's going on for them. How can we give tools to, to integrate into the family or to, with your friends? The second question is, are you okay? How do we equip our people to not just ask the question, but do something meaningful with the answer? And there are all sorts of degrees with that, as you would know. And then the third thing is, are we okay? Collectively, as a team, are we performing to your earlier points? Is something going on underneath because a few of us are not okay or a few, or everyone's on fire at the moment, which is great, and we're performing out of the park? And I think there are really three streams. Maybe there's more, but the thought I've been giving it in the last few months, and I, I have been contemplating writing another book for leaders, but I just don't have to time, the time to do the research <laughs> at the moment, around this concept. Am I okay? Are you okay? Are we okay together? And I think for me, they're the three streams I'd like to, to sort of focus on. You know, Safe Work have some great tools. It would be remiss of me not to kind of promote them in this podcast, particularly for small businesses around how do you help your workforce be a high-performing team and have this care culture of care and, and resilience. And in small business, that could be hard. You lose one person, that could be a third of your workforce or mm. 50% of your workforce. You want to be supportive, but you're also, that's also stressful. So for me, I think it's about continuing to grow tools in those three streams. And I think if we use a language like, am I okay, are you okay, are we okay, or something similar that's kind of catchy, it helps people remember it in its simplest form. And mm. the thing here is not to overcomplicate it. So that would be my thinking about how we can continue the path of building care and resilience within our culture. I really like that, Emma. I really love it. And we've got a, a strategic planning session for Are You OK coming up and I'll, I'll certainly be talking about that because through my own battles and with mood and what have you, I, I've also determined that there's, you know, three levels of care which sort of overlap with what you say but are also a little bit different. And the first is self-care and just knowing that self-care isn't selfish. You know, if we don't look after ourselves, we can't look after other people and, and I've certainly experienced that. The second level is, you know, crew care or team care, you know, where we are looking out for each other, where we are supporting each other. And in my workshops where I've asked people to recall what's been What's been the best team or one of the best teams they've been in? What's been unique about it? And always people say something similar. It could be, you know, we had a common vision. We had each other's back. We had fun. We enjoyed ourselves. And so those elements, you know, help prevent mental health issues because people are also comfortable being themselves. So it takes into account the diversity side of things as well. And last week I interviewed Mike Schneider, the CEO of Bunnings, who have an unbelievably diverse organization and they even have 30 percent of their staff are over 50 you know it's quite extraordinary but they see it as part of their secret of success and part of the reason why they have voted the number one most trusted brand in Australia because they do have a really diverse workforce that are, that are encouraged to do the things in the organization so yeah self-care crew care and then the third element is red zone care and that's looking out for someone who's not in great shape being able to have the are you okay conversation but most importantly then being able to guide them to the help they need and you know i think 
that as we have this ongoing turbulence and in the last year I've, I've done you know, webinars to thousands of employees in all sorts of industries across public sector, private sector, and that always I've been able to do polls of the attendees. The most stressful element has been uncertainty. And the second thing has been isolation as well. So what are you thinking about doing in that sort of area? Is, is that your sense as well across your department? Yeah, so we do have a huge diversity in our department, which I love, right? It's, it's just such, brings me great joy. I guess the, the thing that I'm thinking about, and I like that, the crew care and, and the red zone care, the other thing that we haven't really been having a conversation about that I think is really important is about judgment. Judgment on ourselves about how we're feeling and judgment on others. So one person's crisis can be another person's easy day. And in uh, particularly at the moment where there's such a heightened sense of, I don't want to say a heightened sense of anxiety across our whole community, but there is way more variation in levels of mental wellness, I think, in the last 12 months than perhaps there was in the 12 months before. Let's just say that. So I'll give you a personal example. I, you know, worked on this COVID challenge all year. And then I was taking three weeks off at Christmas. I was in desperate need of a break and I was really, really excited to take three weeks off and see my family. And I was going on leave on the 18th of December. I was having a week with girlfriends and doing bits and pieces. And then I was having two weeks with family. And I live in Manly and the, or Fairlight, and the Avalon cluster, Northern Beaches shutdown Mm. happened. And I ended up being in my home for, for two weeks. No family could come. Mm-hmm. Melbourne family that were coming, that was cancelled. My husband, who'd been really, really excited, suddenly found that his holiday was from the study to the lounge room and not, mm. you know, the study all around Sydney and all the things we'd planned to do. And normally, when I'm upset about something like that, all my plans are ruined, I would get you know, have a bit of a whinge and maybe a cry and I would go to bed and the next day I would dust myself off and move on and understand the the privilege that I have and how lucky we are here in this country. And I genuinely couldn't shake the feeling of resentment that this thing that I had worked on all year was now keeping me confined in my home and that I couldn't have the break I felt that I needed. And I it was like this feeling of the I'd put all this control around what I was going to do at Christmas. Also, I had not planned any milestones beyond Christmas. So I suddenly found myself thinking, gosh, I've got nothing to look forward to that I can use to think, okay, well, Christmas isn't where we are, but the next thing will come. And so I had all of these feelings and then I had all of this judgment about those feelings about, well, you live in a nice house in a nice suburb. You have nothing to whinge about. Get over it. People are in a much more difficult situation than you. Now, I did get over it and I did manage to, I started designing what my next year was going to look like. I did a vision board with lots of bright colours and just really helped myself move out of that mood. But the judgment I had on myself about the feelings, I would never have put that judgment on anyone else, but the feelings that I put on myself because I was so exhausted and I just didn't have the, 
the energy left for the self-care that if I'd have invested in the self-care in the first place, this probably wouldn't have happened. So 2021, as hard as I find self-care to be, I've made a couple of daily commitments to myself around how I'm going to take care of myself to have energy for everyone else and the job that I'm in rather than leaving myself to last. And whilst that's been hard, it's really working. It's really paying off dividends. So the self-judgment around how you're feeling is really challenging. And then if you go and share that with someone else and they say, oh, don't be silly. You don't need to worry about that. Sometimes that can help, but sometimes that can make you feel like, despite someone's good intention, that can make you feel like, oh, this person doesn't think my problem is as big as I think my problem is or doesn't Mm. see it in the same way. And whilst talking can really help, I think empathy is required. And and not everybody knows how to do that well or they're scared they're going to get it wrong and so they don't have the conversation at all. So the more tools we can give people to feel comfortable in the space and ask people, are you okay? But without judgment, asking people to suspend judgment. You don't need to save the person. You just need to hear the person and help them vocalize what they're where they're up to and that alone might help perhaps referring them to someone else might help but you know there's it's a tricky balance around trying to solve somebody's problem for them and then when we think about collectively are we okay I think obviously the judgment about how the team is performing can often differentiate as well which is if you go back to my comment earlier about having clear goals for the team that's how you remove the judgment. Have we made the goals or not? Where are we or not? And I just think that's really important because I think positive conversations about mental wellness can be very quickly shut down Mm. if people think judgment is a problem. And I don't think we're really talking about that. No, I really agree with it. And there still is significant, there's been great progress made, you know, groups like Beyond Blue and Black Dog and Are You OK have made some really great progress in terms of talking about it in general terms, but there still is a lot of uh, stigma in the workplace. People still feel concerned about disclosing that they're struggling. And in some instances, they should be concerned. Mm. We're not there culturally. I think it would be a falsehood to for me to turn up tomorrow and say, or as I have been saying, I've been saying I really want this to be an inclusive place to work where everyone can have open conversations. But I don't pretend that it is in every department because I don't know who every team is and who every supervisor is. And people, obviously, part of your self-care is knowing whether you can truly trust in that environment or not. And that's why I say we're on a journey. We've got mm-hmm. to keep trying, keep sharing the stories of success, keep building tools, keep using safe work or other great resources. I know that you've got a fantastic Are You OK ambassador program. I know, I know other organisations have, you know, different methods by which people can really build skills and capabilities in this area, but it's not going to change overnight. It requires all of us to be brave, to do our best to remove the stigma. And when we get, get it right, tell the story. And when we get it wrong, we learn from it and we do better next time. Tragically, you know, some people have disclosed it and they've experienced discrimination. And so what I suggest people do is to share it with someone at work who you like and trust. (laughs) You know, someone, it doesn't matter what role they're in, but just trying that in the workplace to get a perspective. And if that goes okay, maybe consider doing a bit more. But, you know, doing it with someone that you feel really comfortable with, I think is a great first step. And also, you know, when people are going through it, and I speak from first-hand experiences, you really feel very isolated. You re- really feel really alone. 
But what I've found through sharing my story is that everyone else has a story, <laughs> either them or someone personal. Yeah. It's been a wonderful chat, uh, Emma. I've just got a couple more questions, if that's okay. Firstly, what would your advice be to someone in DCS who's been great on the front line and has just secured their first manager-type role? What advice would you give to them? Yeah, I think, you know, it's very common to take someone and promote them and then expect them to know how to do everything, isn't it? So my advice would be find people who are leaders who you already respect and admire, get to know them, talk to them, copy them, replicate them, read and see what resonates with you and make sure you know where all of the internal resources are to help you be a better leader because there's lots of them on the internet, et cetera, but often people just don't think to go there and then wheels are reinvented when they don't necessarily need to be. And I think ask for help. Very good. I noticed you've uh, had a couple of stints learning things at Stanford. What, mm. What's been something significant that you've learned there? Oh, I went to Stanford for six weeks in 2013. And when you go there and you're in a room with 180 leaders, no one cares what you do. They only care how you contribute to the group. And I learned that I had a lot more knowledge about broader business issues than than just the technical skill that I had been, you know, that I'd been doing for years, which was really around HR and communications. And it was a life-changing experience for me. And it gave me a lot of confidence to come back and say, actually, I've got really trans, I've, I've really got transferable skills and I really want to play in the customer and digital and COO, CEO space. And I want to move out of the people space. And I think before that, I wouldn't have had that confidence. Mm. And finally, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Knowing what you know now to your 20-year-old self, what advice would you give about career and life? I would say work hard and the opportunities will come, but be thoughtful about the opportunities you take. I think for women in particular, women who perform well often get given lots of opportunities and they're so flattered by the opportunity that they take it without thinking about whether or not it's an opportunity that they really want. And so I would say work hard, review the opportunities that come, but be thoughtful about which ones you take. And I would also say it all works out in the end. (laughs) I heard uh, Jerry Seinfeld talking about, you know, getting new comedian's advice and his number one thing was do the work <laughs> just make sure you do it learn from it and keep going and uh but i really like the other perspective you've just added as well about you know choosing the right role asking some mentors if they think it suits you and also does it play to my strengths if it doesn't play to your strengths and doesn't play to your passions it will be very hard to be good at that role mm-hmm. thanks very much emma it's been a real pleasure having you here today i really love how you are pursuing a culture of care and a culture of high performance. And I'm sure there'll be many things that people can take away from this. I uh, thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us today. I hope you've learned something new and heard some practical tips you can try with your team. If you enjoyed this interview today, please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. When you rate us, it helps other people to find us. We also welcome any comments. If you are interested in seeing details about our scalable We Care Mental Health training programs, please visit us at factorc.com.au. Our goal for these programs is to make them accessible, practical, and ongoing. If you've been impressed by a CEO that you would like us to interview, please email details to support at factorc.com.au. 
please subscribe by clicking the button below. We really would love to have you as part of the care movement. Thanks for joining us.